Malachi 3.13, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him, who, before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like cows from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is the word of the Lord. They say that patience is a virtue, uh, and it's a, it's a virtue because it's kind of hard to come by. Patience is hard to cultivate. Patience is difficult to practice. Waiting for a pot of water to boil just to make your ramen noodles when you're like super hungry seems like it takes forever. And we have come to the point now where if something takes longer than two days to be shipped to your home, it's like, well, just forget it. Keep it. I didn't want it to begin with. We've come to the end of the book of Malachi now. And after our final passage today, Israel would be met with 400 years of silence. Their patience must have been wearing thin by the time John the Baptist would arrive on the scene to announce the, the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But their impatience was seen even during the time of the prophet Malachi when this book was written. We see in today's passage that they were having a hard time looking beyond their current circumstances, their own current moment in time and in space, and that caused them to speak harshly about God. The structure of the book of Malachi is built around questions and answers. It's essentially six disputes or dialogues between God and his people that's mediated through his prophet. Each of these interactions has three elements to it. The prophet declares a statement from God, and then he articulates Israel's objection to that statement, and then he provides a response to that objection. So here's the dispute from today's final section of the book of Malachi. Your words have been hard against me. This is Israel's words have been hard against God. They object. How have we spoken against you? And the response You've essentially said that it makes no practical difference whether we serve God or not. 
The prophet Malachi explains that a day of justice would be coming. It would be a day that would bring both wrath and healing. And the distinction between what would happen on that great day would be between those who fear God and serve Him and those who are arrogant, prideful, and do not serve Him. That cloudiness of whether or not it makes any sort of practical difference to follow God would be clarified one day in the future, but it would require waiting, and it would require trusting in the Lord. I submit that the big idea of this passage is this, those who fear God will have nothing to be afraid of on the day of the Lord. Those who fear God will have nothing to be afraid of on the day of the Lord. We'll break down this section into four uh, distinct sections. First, the goal of serving God is not his benefits, but God himself. We see that in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Second, the reverent remnant will be God's treasure. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Then third, the day of the Lord brings both wrath and healing from chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And then four, wait in hopeful expectation for the coming of the Lord at the end of chapter 4. So let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, we do confess that we are all too often impatient, and we we know that it can be difficult to, to wait. It can be difficult to look beyond our own circumstances and, and time and space. We ask that you would help us this morning to, to zoom out a little bit and try to gain some perspective and just trust that you will do what is right, and that we can lean into both your providence and your goodness to guide our hearts in our current circumstances. Help us to trust you and help us to love you more. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, the goal of serving God is not his benefits, but God himself. Chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Let me just read that back into our hearing again. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, you've said that it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Well, it's in this final dispute between God and his people uh, that they see once more that they've been dishonoring his name. Uh, through their speech and through their actions. They've been speaking harshly among themselves about God. And here's their issue. They say that they don't see any sort of practical benefit to serving God. This is all sort of a callback to the end of chapter 2 of the book of Malachi 2. It was there that they were questioning whether God had changed his mind about his own definition of justice Maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he's celebrating justice now. Where is the God of justice? Why is he letting the, the evil and wicked escape? And so they were speaking against God. And then, of course, God responded in no uncertain terms that he does not change. He still loves justice, still loves mercy, still hates evil and wickedness. But God was being patient in the execution of his justice. 
And his justice definitely would come just in an unexpected way. That's a hard pill to swallow for the Israelites or for you and I if we don't trust God. If you don't believe God's promises, all of that means nothing to you. And there were many within Israel who did not trust God. Their lack of trust played out in very real and practical ways. It was evident in the way that they were cold toward him, the way that they were skeptical and cynical and apathetic even in their worship. They didn't trust him. They lacked any sort of meaningful affection for God. And I think we get the clearest picture in this final dispute why that is. It seems that their vision of reality was narrowly focused on the here and now. There wasn't enough of an immediate payoff for them to keep following God's law. What's the point? We can go through the outward signs of repentance for sin. We can keep God's charge. Notice verse 14, what it says. It says they were walking as in mourning before the Lord, keeping his charge. In other words, going through the motions in order to look like they cared, but there was no meaningful heartfelt remorse against their sin, which they had committed against God. So from their perspective, they're like, listen, we're, we're going through the motions, we're doing what we were expected to do, but it doesn't seem like it's having the expected effect that we were anticipating. And then you can add on top of that their frustration. Not only are they not getting what they were expected, they're looking at the proud and the arrogant, those who are making their own way, and it seems like they're doing quite well. They're testing the Lord's patience, and they're getting away with it. It seems like there's no limit to what people are able to get away with without God stopping them. So here's what they're thinking, I would imagine. We're, we're going through the motions, and we're floundering, and yet here are those who are evil, who are following their own way, and they're flourishing. So there doesn't seem to be any sort of meaningful clear distinction or difference between those who are devoted to God and those who are mocking God. So what's the difference? So this is their experience. This is their perspective on the situation. The book of Job touches on this concern as well. Job chapter 21, Job's own words himself are actually quite harsh toward God. He said that it seemed as if the wicked are living in prosperity. It seems as if serving God and pursuing righteousness profits a man nothing. He says this, what profit do we get if we pray to him? And of course, the Lord responds to Job in chapters 38 through 41, essentially using a series of questions and statements and metaphors to describe the vast complexity of the natural world and the serious limitations to human understanding. And then after those chapters are done, Job responds by saying, yeah, that's my bad. I clearly did not know what I was talking about. I did not understand these things are too wonderful for me. And he repents in dust and ashes, not just going through the motions, but genuinely in humility, recognizing the limitations of his own perspective, his own limitations, and trusting that the God of all the earth would do what is right. Does anyone have questions like this? Maybe know people who ask questions like this. What practical benefits are there to becoming a Christian? 
Like if I follow Jesus, if I follow God's law, if I do good things, will I be guaranteed joy and ease for the rest of my life? I mean, if we have to do like a cost-benefit analysis sort of a thing, how exactly is this going to shake out? I mean, if I have to sacrifice my freedom in order to follow God's law, will my life appear any different from those who are living as if they are free to do as they please? In John Bunyan's allegorical book called The Pilgrim's Progress, Christian runs into a character called Pliable. Pliable hears about the judgment that is coming to the city which he is in, that city of destruction, and he wants to not be destroyed, and so he wants the salvation that is found in the celestial city, and so he follows Christian on his journey to that celestial city. Pliable, this character, wants to escape harm. He wants to find a better life for himself. But as they're on this journey, they run into some troubles. They get into some tough problems on their journey, and they fall into the slough of despond, like a big muddy bog that was meant to symbolize spiritual despair. And Pliable decides, this is just too much for me. So he turns back, and he goes back to his old life. Pliable goes back to his old, his old home. And so it becomes clear, it turns out, that the celestial city is not what Pliable was pursuing. It was his own immediate comfort and security. His interest in salvation was actually pretty superficial. The call to Christian discipleship requires sacrifice and grit and perseverance, as we've even sung about this morning. Uh, Adversities and challenges and mysteries will face us each. And if we're following Jesus merely for the practical benefits, like finding a community to belong to or gaining some clear ethical guidance for our life or gaining inner peace, maybe just finding a place that I can belong to serve other people, maybe it's a way to relieve stress, if that's what we're here for, it is entirely possible that we haven't actually come to Christ, we've only come to Christ's benefits. And when those practical benefits are shaken by suffering or by circumstances, which they inevitably will be, you might ask, what does it profit me to follow Jesus? And you will be tempted to go back to your old life. Friends, this is why we have to be honest about the challenges of taking up your cross and following Jesus in our discipleship and in our evangelism. There is a cost of discipleship. There are definitely practical benefits of being a Christian, but in a fallen world, they will inevitably ebb and flow. And if your faith is built on what God provides for you in the here and now, rather than in the fear of the Lord, your faith might be built on sinking sand. We each need to count the cost in following Jesus. And so if you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, you need to do the, the accounting properly. So on the cost side, you could probably stack up quite a few things. Owning up to your own sin, uh, maybe a sacrifice of your own comfort. You know, taking up your cross and following Jesus is no small feat. There would be social pressure that comes along with it. There's a commitment of your time. You guys aren't at the lake this morning. Financial sacrifice, as we talked about in the passage just before this, maybe losing family and friends, 
maybe facing genuine, real, hostile persecution. You might even end up losing your job. Death. For some people in other parts of the world, it means losing everything, becoming an enemy of the state when you turn to follow Christ. And this is not, of course, a comprehensive list. I'm sure that there is more that we could add. And now if you want to try to start building with a benefit side, I just want to discourage you from thinking of things like community and peace and hope. Those things are great. But here's what that list really should consist of, is God. What do you get when you follow God? God himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Creator, Judge, Redeemer. And if that's not at the top of your list, here's an invitation to reconsider your view of the Christian life. It is not useless or vain or empty to serve God when the treasure that you're looking for isn't temporary prosperity but eternal blessedness before the, pre- the presence of God himself. And as we grow in maturity, as we go through life, trusting in God, we learn by experience that he comes through. His plan is eternal. He knows what he's doing. He has his reasons for exercising patience in executing his final justice. And those who fear him and honor his name are meant to accept that he knows better than we do, that what he does is right, and he is wise in ways that we cannot understand. That is the posture that we actually see described in the next set of verses. Second, the reverent remnant will be God's treasure. Verses 16 through 18 say this. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see that distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So notice the strong contrast that exists between these two different groups. Verses 13 through 15, there's this group that is complaining amongst themselves about God. They're they're complaining about God's character to each other, grumbling around the water cooler. But here in verses 16 and 17, there is a different group speaking different words about God. These are those who are fearing the Lord. And they get together and have a little conference to to fear him together and to esteem his name. And so not only does God overhear those who are grumbling against him, he overhears those who are honoring his name. Notice in verse 16, there's an interesting phrase there. One we don't run into very often. says, a book of remembrance was written before him. Now, we recognize that God doesn't need a scroll to, to write down the things that he needs to remember, but it's a helpful metaphor, a helpful metaphor for the fact that God keeps track and God knows what our destiny is. If an author is writing a book of history, that, that human author is going to be limited to whatever sources of information he can get his hands on. He's not going to know the whole story. He's going to have little bits and pieces, and he's going to try to synthesize a whole. But God is omniscient. 
So nothing that happens goes unnoticed by God. Nothing is unknown by God. And so he sees and hears those who are fearing him, those who are honoring and esteeming his name, and he records them in a book of remembrance. He makes them his own. They will be part of his treasured possession, as he puts it there. He will spare them in the judgment as a man has compassion on his faithful son. Notice it's those who feared the Lord. Feared the Lord. Fear of God is such a huge, important, consistent, central topic throughout Scripture. And it can be confusing. I know it comes up fairly often. But it comes up in sort of different ways. It can be confusing because Jesus tells his disciples not to fear. Anytime an angel shows up, like the first thing they say is fear not. Uh, We're told not to be anxious. So it seems like a mixed message. Don't fear and yet fear. And it kind of a little bit is. We have to think carefully here. Christians should never be afraid of God, but we should always have a reverential fear of him. We don't cower in fear of eternal punishment because the Christian goes, he knows God as father, not only as judge. And so he spares us, as he says, as as a loving father would spare his son. So depending on your experience, you may or may not have had a father that you have that sort of relationship to. Maybe you had a great dad, maybe you didn't. Even if that wasn't your experience, I think you can imagine what that relationship is like. You have a desire to please your dad, knowing that he is the source of your life and provides for you and cares for you. And if he's a good dad who loved you and cared for you, you might say you had a healthy fear of him. Not a fear that pushes you away from him, but in a mysterious way, it is a fear that's sort of magnetic, a fear of doing anything that would displease him, the sort of fear that pulls you towards him in love. So there's a type of fear that comes close to hatred, a fear that would make you want to flee, a fear that would make you want to run away. And there's a loving, devoted fear that actually draws you near, a sinful fear a right fear. And it's that second kind of fear that we are to have of God as Father. The instruction to fear God and honor His name comes up at least once in every single chapter of this short book. And finally, in this group now that he's addressing within Israel, this reverent remnant, we have those who are doing both. We've seen throughout this book that the, the prophet is calling out Israel. He's calling them out for their worship being thin and empty and cynical. You know, they've been going through the motions, but they actually are carrying contempt for God within their hearts, even though it doesn't actually express itself in their actions. They're trying to hide it. It's there. They don't trust him. They think they know better than he does. And so really, it's no wonder why they don't think God is worth worshiping. He's just the man in the sky who can't quite seem to get things right. Well, friends, the solution to the anemic worship that Israel was experiencing is a right fear of the Lord. So if you need to be reoriented to that, to a right fear of God, let me just encourage you to prayerfully read through Job chapters 38 through 41 this evening. The bigger your vision of God and of his dignity and of his sovereignty, the bigger that vision gets, the better. Uh, and, And so these chapters are great place to start. No matter how big your vision of God is, it's still too small. 
So it's always something you can work on enlarging. The only path towards restoring the heart of worship is to have a grand view of God and his glory and his dignity. Even though much of Israel has grown cynical and cold and skeptical toward God, there remains this group that he's addressing who have gathered together to honor his name. There remains a reverent remnant. A remnant is a small remaining quantity of something. So there are some within Israel still who do fear God, who have affection for God, and who would be shown mercy through God's sovereign grace at that final day of judgment. But that would not be clear to them in that day. It wouldn't be clear until the day when he completes his treasured possession. Verse 18, you see there, it says, in that day, it will become clear who is righteous and who is wicked. So that ambiguity that they've been complaining about will be clarified. It will be cleared up in that day. The ones who serve God will finally see that it truly did profit them to serve God, to follow him, because they will at last be separated and distinguished from those who did not. Notice, third, that the day that he just mentioned will bring both condemnation and healing. So that distinction is going to be important. Notice it's starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Third, the day of the Lord brings both wrath and healing. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So we've seen two different groups, one uh, complaining to themselves, grumbling against God and his character, another group fearing the Lord together, getting together to honor and revere his name. And both of these groups now are brought together into this section. The skeptical group, they thought following God is useless, no practical benefit. And then the group that fears God, fears his name, esteems his name, honors his name. In the day when God does act, that first group gets condemnation or wrath, whereas the second group gets healing. Notice how the first group is described here that first group that was speaking harsh words against God. It includes those called the arrogant, uh, the evildoers. And notice the result on that day. It says they will be stubble. Uh, after a wheat field is harvested, all that is left in the ground is the stubble. Uh, short straws, sticks that are just coming up from the ground. And so farmers would intentionally set fire to that in order to clear the ground. And that's the metaphor for the condemnation that is mentioned here, that wrath for the wicked that will be, it says, set ablaze so that there wouldn't be a root or a branch left of them. Uh, root and branch is pretty comprehensive. From tip to tail, nothing remains. But notice the sharp contrast for the second group. is those who fear God's name as it's explained in verse 2 there. Uh, if you're looking for a memory verse from the book of Malachi, you might not be able to do better than chapter 4, verse 2. 
we have a metaphor here of a sun with wings bringing healing. And so in the ancient Near East, many of the nations would picture their deities as gods, as like a, a disc with wings on it. It was a, an image that Israel would have been familiar with. We have images uh, where the sun is represented that way in, in drawings and in carvings. So the rays, as they were picturing it, the rays of the sun would shine out so that they would be pictured almost like wings or even like arms that are sort of reaching out from the sun itself. So we recognize that the, the sun is huge, the sun is powerful, but the sun is really far away. And yet somehow, mysteriously, despite its distance, the sun's powerful energy is still felt on the earth. And it's like the, the warmth, the energy of the sun is reaching out to the earth. So that even when the sun is at its highest point in the sky, we still feel its warmth. Even though it looks far, it's near. And it's both far and near at the same time. My family was driving back from Flagstaff yesterday, coming back down the mountain. And there was a lot of high, big clouds, big fluffy clouds. And you could see the light poking through those big, thick clouds. The light falling on the earth and the valley below bringing its warmth. That's the image there. Wherever the wings cover, the sunlight falls and healing arrives. I recognize that it is hard for us to think about the sun bringing healing in Phoenix, especially as the summer drags on into September. We don't think of healing where the sun lands. We think of cookies being cooked on dashboards of cars. But it is important to remember that in other places of the world, uh, this is an important picture. Without the warmth of the sun, there would be no life. And so God is using this imagery that Israel would be familiar with, and then he's filling it with its proper meaning. For those who fear the Lord, the sun will rise on that last day, and as it does, it will reach out with truth and salvation in its beams. Its warmth will heal. The image of the Son of Righteousness ultimately we know is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. He is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever does what is wicked hates the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The Father has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so as the comforting word of the gospel falls on your ears this morning, the call for response is clear. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He uses another image to illustrate this joy and excitement that will result for those who fear the Lord on that last day. He pictures the reverent remnant as calves leaping from the stall. Now, I am embarrassed to say this. My grandfather owned a cattle ranch, and I didn't really understand what this illustration meant. I was speaking to Mark Moore just a little bit before the service just to clarify. He's got more experience than I. Why would calves leap from a stall? And I get it. It doesn't really make sense. But if you think of it this way, maybe it's helpful. If you've kept your, your calves, those baby cows, they've been born in like January, February, it's cold, like negative 10, depending where you're living, and you keep them in the stall because you want to protect them, and you want them to, to be able to come out from that stall in the spring. 
but they've been in there all winter. They're, they're sort of locked in there. Well, sure, they're safe and warm, but they're going to have a lot of pent-up energy. And so when you finally release them in the spring, they get pretty excited. And it looks something like this. The prophet says that the excitement of God's people on that last day will show that level of excitement, that level of happiness that is somewhat on par with what we saw. Malachi 4.2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Notice in verses 1 through 3, the prophet mentions the day three distinct times. He says, the day is coming, the day is coming, and then he clarifies even further, the day when I will act. The sun will rise on that final day that's being anticipated here, and things will be seen as they truly are, not through a glass darkly, but as they truly are. Verse 5 calls it the great and awesome day of the Lord. And in that day, things will be seen. And the sun will bring healing for those who fear the Lord. And we understand that in light of Christ. Uh, those who fear the Lord are those who obey his gospel, who accept his righteousness by faith alone. We, we know ourselves well enough to understand that if the sun was to rise and display every dark corner of our lives from the perspective of an all-knowing creator and judge, we would stand no chance in that judgment. It's only when we find shelter by faith alone in Christ, under his wings, as it were, that we're counted as righteous, reckoned as righteous both now in this day and in that day that is to come. But everywhere where the sun falls on those who love the darkness, those who love arrogance, those who embrace doing evil, that sun as it rises does not bring healing, it brings wrath. The heat burns like an oven, as it says, setting them ablaze like stubble. God is not embarrassed about his justice. The one sun will bring both the light of judgment and it will result in either the heat of wrath or the warmth of healing. Which will you lay claim to? If you're aiming for healing, the prophet has some final words for you. Point four. Wait in hopeful expectation for the coming of the Lord. Verses four through six. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him for Horeb, at Horeb for all Israel. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with an utter decree of destruction. So those who have received this prophet's message from chapter 1 until now were called to remember the law of God and to remember it, not just to bring it back into mind, but to act upon it. That law that God gave to Moses, referenced there in verse 4, 
really this is just one last closing reminder for Israel to return to faithfulness to the covenant. As we saw during our time in Psalm 119 a few weeks back, the law of God can be a fearful thing. Surely the the law shows us what is true and righteous, and and it brings our sinfulness to light. But for the one who is justified by faith alone in Christ alone, God's law helps us to understand what is pleasing to our Father, that Father who has compassion on us and redeems us as a son. The Christian is to delight in God's law, not in a way to sort of establish your own righteousness, not at all, but as a light that is on our path that is guiding us slowly out of the darkness of depravity as we stumble toward that great and final day. The law can be summed up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you go back and read through the book of Malachi, you will see how those two things were absent from the life of Israel and being called out very explicitly. These two principles are capturing the essence of the law according to Christ. And it really is the emphasis of a love of God and a love of neighbor that is the foundation for all of righteous living, ethical Christian living. And we need to remember the law for another reason. Even as we sin, we remember that law which reminds us of the fact that we continually have need to repent, that we continually need to have Christ interceding and advocating, mediating for us on our behalf, leading up to today and that last great and awesome day. The whole Christian life is one of repentance. The final two verses here, God reminds them that he is going to bring reconciliation. He's going to bring restoration. He promises the return of the prophet Elijah before the last day. The prophet Elijah. He's already kind of alluded to this concept in chapter 3, verse 1, where he said that he was going to send a messenger And when he comes, this messenger, now seems to be alluded to as Elijah, he would turn the hearts of fathers to their children and vice versa. Throughout Israel's history, one generation would, would sort of repent and return to God, but then over the series of generations that, that would, that would fall apart. And there was a series of cycles of sin, unrepentant sin, exile, and then repentance, and then return and restoration of the land. It was like a a repeating whirlpool of sorrow that they were pulled into. And it seems here that when this prophet comes, he would turn the hearts of the fathers to their sons and, and vice versa. It seems that this promise that is being made here is that he would establish an ongoing continuity within the people of God that there would be no more cycles of unrepentant sin and exile and restoration for his people. Now, we know in light of the New Testament uh, from Galatians and Romans that a genetic family tree is not what makes someone a true Israelite. It is a faithful heart, one who trusts and believes in God's promises. And so our posture of trust in God is what will determine our experience on that last day. It is not our genealogy. But it's important to remember that all true Christians stand in a very long line of a spiritual heritage of faith. 
It's interesting to note that Elijah is mentioned by name here. Uh, Elijah was more or less Israel's first prophet. Uh, He was kind of a unique prophet, stood out from the rest. He performed miracles, pretty amazing ones. He stood against the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, called down fire from heaven. He prayed for rain that would end a drought that was uh, in, in session. He brought a widow's son back to life. And his departure from earth Uh, was also miraculous in and of itself. He did not die, but was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. That's pretty rare in the Bible. It's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 2. And so the fact that Elijah doesn't seem to have a narrative ending to his story sort of leaves open this possibility that Elijah would return and continue his prophetic ministry. And so Malachi is keying in on this concept connecting this messenger, this prophet, with that coming day of the Lord. In fact, uh, to this day, those who sometimes observe Jewish Seder meals will leave an empty space for Elijah, the prophet. They'll, they'll set up a space for him and make sure that he is a welcome guest at the meal. It's a symbolic gesture that would reflect the hope and anticipation of that coming prophet who would announce the arrival of the Messiah. And sometimes there's even a moment after the meal, during their Passover Seder meals, where they will let the door open uh, as if a way to say, Elijah is welcome. Simply symbolic gestures of welcoming that prophet and the fulfillment of all the messianic promises. Now, of course, they misunderstand that John and Jesus have both come, right? We'll talk more about that when we get to the Gospel of John. But this, this image of Elijah is picked up on in the New Testament. And so when Jesus asks Peter who people say he is at Caesarea Philippi, Peter responds, well, there's some people who actually think that you're Elijah. And the reason is because they're keying in on this concept here. But in Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, Jesus said that John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy about Elijah, that he was the prophet who prepared the way and declared the arrival of the Messiah. In fact, John the Baptist's father in Luke 1 has a prophecy and speaks about John the Baptist. And he says this, quote, he would go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the people, ready for the Lord, a people who are prepared. So it seems like John the Baptist is the guy, but then you ask John the Baptist, someone asks him whether he's Elijah and he denies it. So there does seem to be some sense in which Elijah has already come, the spirit of Elijah, but perhaps he hasn't come yet. There are still some who interpret Revelation chapter 12 to point to the return of Elijah as one of those two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 12. There's still some mystery that remains here, but we have so much more light Uh, than they did at the time of the prophet Malachi. This book sort of unofficially marks the end of any further special revelation from God for the next 400 years or so. And then along came Mary and God's promises, which surely must have seemed so far away, reached out in warmth to bring healing through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are at a different place in redemptive history than Israel was that 400 years or 450 years before Christ. 
but all we have is actually just a much longer track record of God's faithfulness to lean on. We know of Christ's first coming, and yet we still wait for his second coming. And we're to wait in hopeful expectation with thousands of years of joy that has been built up like calves in the stall in winter, just waiting to bust out in the joy of an unending summer in the presence of God himself without the burdens of sin and evil and death and decay. The prophet reminded God's people that he loved them. And we too must have that conviction that God loves us deeply rooted in our hearts. He reminded them that sin and evil is ultimately an offense to God that only would be able to be remedied by God himself. And he called them to repent of their apathy, of their faithlessness, and to turn back to a wholehearted devotion to God and genuine worship. And he pointed them forward to look to a future with great hope, great joy in the arrival of the Messiah so that those who fear God will have nothing to be afraid of on that day of the Lord. Thanks be to God for our Savior, Lord, and King, Jesus Christ. May his message land on soft hearts. Let's pray.